The Island of Talatudua, Southern Sri Lanka, 1981. The first time I found the well when I'd arrived and I was exploring the island, something moved above my head and I remember looking up and seeing this long hose-like shape slithering through the branches of this tree. Quite a scary thing to see on my first day. It was as thick as my arm if not thicker. So that is the rat snake, or gerandia, as it's better known in Singhalese. It's a large constrictor. It can grow up to eight feet in length. It's very excitable, and it's been known to defend its turf aggressively by startling or striking at passing objects. So needless to say, David would slowly back away from the tree until he learned from Nanasena, one of the three resident monks on the island, that this rat snake was in fact relatively harmless to humans at least. The other creature that appeared quite regularly was a monitor lizard, giant monitor lizard, which often came out of the bushes when I was at the well brushing my teeth, and it would stop. It's about five feet long, and they can thwack you with their long tail and break your leg if you get entangled with one. This particular one only had half a tail, so he had presumably had a bad encounter with maybe a crocodile in the lagoon or, or something else. There were lots of other animals to be found on the island. There was the grey langur monkey, who would often be seen squatting on his hairy forearms, hissing through a mouthful of fangs. There was the pie dog, of the sort known to live in human settlements across Asia, that the monks for some reason had named Jimmy. And Jimmy's affections to where David were primarily transactional. He'd be seen rubbing his neck against David's leg in the hopes of finishing what was on the menu for the day. Then there was Bakamuna, who, David, on a long retreat seeking solace in the midst of a major life crisis, would form a very unlikely bond with. This story is a story about outsiders. It's a story about society's effect on them, and in turn, their effect on society as they navigate the road less traveled. But beyond all else, this is a story about what the writer Sarah Maitland suggests is the critical question of our age. And that question is this. How have we arrived at a cultural moment which values autonomy, personal freedom, fulfillment, human rights, and above all, individualism? more highly than they have ever been valued in human history. And at the same time, these autonomous, free, self-fulfilling, wonderful individuals are terrified of being alone with themselves. Walden Pond, Concord, Massachusetts, 1845. There's a young man, he's in his late 20s, and he's harvesting beans for sale. Behind him, a simple abode that he's built for himself with little more than a bed, a table, and a few chairs to turn house into home. And a few kilometers away, in Concord, the town folk, most of whom are not too pleased at the arrival of this stranger, are trying to figure out what this all means. The man's name is Henry David Thoreau. Thoreau cut a very distinctive figure with large, curious eyes and a prominent nose, and in fact his closest friend, the poet Ellery Channing, once wrote, 
His face, once seen, could not be forgotten. Interestingly enough, Thoreau seemed to have wanted nothing more than to be forgotten, at least for a while. He moves in on the 4th of July, Independence Day, in his neck of the woods, and he begins a period of self-reflection that has now become legendary. It's during those two years, two months, and two days, at Walden Pond, that he would start on what was to become the core of his best-known work, Walden, or Life in the Woods. His decision was to conduct an experiment in what he called living deliberately, which meant to front only the essential facts of life. And if he found that life was in fact mean, he would embrace its meanness and publish its meanness to the world. And if it was sublime, uh, he would experience its sublimity at the very core of his being. And he did this so that when he came to die, he did not feel he had never lived his life. Indeed, by the end of his 44 years of life, his friends had remarked on how tranquil he had seemed. There's an anecdote about a relative of his asking him if he had made his peace with God, to which Thoreau apparently responded, I did not know we had ever quarreled. Thoreau made a clear distinction between solitude and loneliness. Solitude being an absolutely essential ingredient in developing personal reflection and for building character, with loneliness being something that people can experience even when in the company of other people. To him, the equation was simple. To build perspective, you had to be away from the masses. In 2014, participants in an experiment carried out by the University of Virginia were asked to put away any distractions and entertain themselves with their own thoughts for 15 minutes. Then they were wired up and given a chance to shock themselves during the thinking period, if they desired. And they all had a chance to try out the device to see how painful it was. And yet, even among those who said they would pay money not to feel the shock again, a quarter of the women and two-thirds of the men gave themselves a zap when left with their own thoughts. One outlier pressed the button a hundred and ninety times in the fifteen minutes. Simply being alone with their own thoughts for fifteen minutes was apparently so aversive that it drove many of the participants to self-administer an electric shock, a shock they had earlier said they would pay to avoid. Like yourself, I found that this idea of of anything remotely to do with being alone or being in silence was sort of censored. You were made to feel that you were weird and there's something wrong with you. You were introverted. You were not wanting to play the game. And of course, that's because you'd started to see through the rules of the game and you were trying to establish or find some alternative because you felt there was something not quite right about the rules of the game. There was something else more important somewhere. One of the principal issues with the game is its obsession with excess. The psychologist Robert Wright uses the analogy of a powdered sugared donut and how having that first bite sets in motion a process of diminishing returns. When you first see one sitting on a plate, you probably wouldn't think very much of it. You wouldn't know anything about it. But when you first eat it, there's this dopamine rush of bliss. Now, what they showed in an experiment was that 
Once you've had that dopamine rush of pleasure, the mind picks up on that and lodges on the idea that another one will give me that same pleasure again. So craving for another sugar donut now arises. And in fact, you can extrapolate from that that the entire consumer culture operates on a similar idea. The mechanisms that are built up inside us in order to survive don't exactly predispose us towards a condition of happiness. Many of our problems come from this primal confusion we're in, not understanding our own mind. You know, we're constantly distracted. We obviously need to do something because we are so overwhelmed by distractions and noise and anxiety that these things produce in us that if we don't cultivate it in some form or we don't address this, we tend to suffer in extreme ways. This is what the novelist and screenwriter Maria Semple refers to as the discounting mechanism of the brain. So say someone gives you a present and you open it and you love it. You're all happy at first and the next day it still makes you happy, but a little less so. A year later you see it and you think, ah, that old thing. But the reason your brain discounts things is for survival, because to be prepared to deal with danger, we're hardwired to focus on new experiences. There's a great passage in the book Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl that speaks of every age having its own collective neurosis and every age having to develop its own brand of psychotherapy to cope with it. Many of us in the 60s were drawn to Eastern teachings because we were looking for something to address the kind of unease we felt about modern, urban, secular culture. There was something that gave us anxiety. We suffered from forgetfulness of being because we were not connected to being. If we are fully alive, we should be constantly astonished at the fact that we are. And being should evoke that astonishment. So that's where my interest in, in the Buddhist approach became more pronounced. These days, David runs a mindfulness-based stress reduction program. How it works is, the program participants meet formally with a facilitator for two hours a week over eight weeks, and they're given practices to do in their own time, both at home and in the workplace. Then toward the end of the program, usually around the sixth or seventh week, there's a full-day silent retreat where participants can practice mindfulness in a less formal setting and can both be alone with themselves and in the company of others. Your day is for you to be mindful of whatever is arising within you throughout the day, whatever it is. And even that includes the meal that we eat, eating very slowly, so you're mindful of what you're eating. Uh, it's also in silence, there's no talking. So you're pretty much left to yourself. It has a structure in that I ring a bell at various points in time and they're given a walking meditation for 30 minutes or a sitting meditation for 45 minutes or something else. So there's a certain structure to it, but it's as simple as that. Whatever arises within you is your curriculum for the day. It's being aware of it, whether it's pleasant or it's unpleasant. And it brings the whole practice of mindfulness into a living situation, as opposed to 
your practice might be 30 minute meditation after you get up in the morning before you go to work, etc., etc. Whereas here, there is no other demand on you, so you're just mindful all day. Being able to listen in the sense that we're talking about here, listening to oneself, you have to listen at a quite deep level to be true to yourself and what's going on, what's arising in you, as opposed to covering it up. There's no shouldism in Buddhism. <laughs> it's not about should or should not. It's about, well, what is the case? What is here now? And how do we look at that, accept it, and then move on? That kind of listening comes out of what I'm calling silence. The hope is that by the end of the eight weeks, one's ability to engage in solitude helps them see themselves more clearly and forces them to question the vanity of a life that's predicated solely on ambition. And to clearly see all the fears and complexities and frustrations that arise from a life that's based purely on self-centered activity. Bedfordshire, South East England, 1956. A 10-year-old David is biking around the woodlands and he comes across a caravan and he hears someone moving around inside and he catches a few notes of a harmonica. A few days later he returns and from a distance he sees this stooped bearded figure with a pronounced limp. Initially David was fearful of approaching this strange figure. But over the span of six years, between 1956 and 1962, they end up having conversations that would eventually ignite a curiosity in David about the teachings of a man called the Buddha, and which would start David off on a path of self-discovery. Tom was an eccentric vagabond countryman, the kind that could still be found in England back then. He lived a life of bare necessity in the woods, across the river, a few miles away from David's home. It wasn't uncommon to find people in the mid-50s who lived like this, and he'd had a, quite an interesting life, and he'd travelled between the wars, working on ships, going as far as Japan, joined the army in the Second World War and fought in Burma, where he'd injured his leg. He seemed to have a kind of homespun wisdom, and I think... It was more just his presence and his way of life and his oddness that made me think, well, you know, there are other ways of looking at all of this. Despite his semi-vagrant appearance, Tom was very well-spoken and turned out he had actually come from a well-to-do family. He had just opted out of that way of life and took time to roam the countryside, taking on odd jobs before settling on this caravan as a solution. Much like Thoreau, Tom felt that modern industrial life could be sort of imprisoning, and so he elected to having a simple dwelling and as few possessions as possible, and just enough funds to keep him going through the change of seasons. Whenever he could, David would visit Tom and listen to his stories, or the tunes he would play on his harmonica, and he would learn about the various Hindu and Buddhist ways of thought core concepts like rebirth and karma. That's how I became interested in outsiders, people who challenge the main narrative. 
and it was the beginning of the following year that I found his caravan had disappeared. He had died of pneumonia that winter. It was a bad winter, I think. The Isle of Skye, northwest Scotland, the year 2000. Sarah Maitland is in the middle of a six-week stay in a quiet cottage, and she's experiencing the purest pleasures of freedom. No phone calls, no emails, no neighbors. Maitland has grown up in a noisy household. The second of six children born to an upper-middle-class London family. But in the early 1990s, this profound change occurs within her, where the need to seek out silence becomes the driving force in her life. In her book about silence, aptly titled A Book of Silence, she describes her relationship with silence, feeling that it sought her out rather than the other way around. She hadn't just written it purely about her own contemplative experiences, for example, but that she had expanded the whole subject into looking at it from all these different angles and including conversations with people who felt there was something very negative about it. In her book, she recalls a day in October of 1962. She's on a sunny day trip to Cambridge with her parents and one of their friends, Harry, an admiral in the U.S. Navy. All of a sudden, a young man from the U.S. Embassy appears and he'd been looking fervently for Harry, hastily instructs him to fly home immediately to defend his country. Maitland was 12 at the time. At the exact same time, David, who is now 16, is some 120 kilometers southwest of Maitland, hunkered down at Eton College, where everything has descended into a quiet but very palpable panic. In the ensuing two weeks, the world would be seized by the very real fear of potential nuclear annihilation. Kennedy and Khrushchev are facing each other off over the Cuban Missile Crisis. It really did look like an all-out nuclear war was a, an actual possibility. I mean, it came very close to that. There was a genuine sense of fear, and it was difficult, quite alarming, to be a teen of that age and to have to contemplate, well, basically annihilation. I don't think there'd ever been a previous generation who were actually confronted with that, which we have not experienced in that way since. Like Maitland, David found his time at prep school a damaging and brutal experience. But that would all change when a man by the name of Charles Barr was brought into Eton. Now Barr, who would eventually go on to become Britain's first ever film professor, at the time had to accomplish the almost insurmountable task of getting the school administration at Eton to see the value of film studies as a worthwhile academic pursuit. We got to look at films as serious works. And for the first time, I began to look at this in a completely different way. So David had finally found a lifeline, and he threw himself fully into film. And at 19, he takes a stab at screenwriting. Now the film, a student film called Wild Roses, ends up receiving a very positive review in Movie Maker magazine. And this review finds its way onto the radar of a film director by the name of Terence Young and his team who were looking for a third assistant director on an upcoming project. Vienna, the home of the Habsburgs. For over 700 years, they ruled a world where the sun never set. Not in Alexandria or 
Rome or England had there been such an empire. The true story of Meierling, of which the film was named after, is centered around the Crown Prince Rudolf of Austria battling with his father, the Emperor Franz Joseph, over implementing more progressive policies. Now Rudolf also happens to be trapped in a loveless marriage with a Belgian princess, and so he begins an affair with a young baroness, Maria Vetseva, which of course causes a scandal and would eventually end fatally for the two of them. The Crown Prince was played by Omar Sharif. Sharif had made Dr. Zhivago only a few years before and was probably the world's most recognizable film star. There was James Mason, Captain Nemo in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and he was cast as the Emperor. Then we had Ava Gardner playing the Empress and Catherine Deneuve, the young offending Baroness. David's interaction with the two leading men could not have been more different. He remembers Omar Sharif as possibly the most genial and approachable person on the whole set. Someone who he would have several conversations with. James Mason, on the other hand, appeared to have committed to staying in character throughout the shoot, remaining stern and emotionless. And it wasn't very dissimilar with the ladies, my job was to get these people out of their hotels on time in the morning into makeup. I would get Ava Gardner in at 7 a.m. to this very ebullient Italian makeup artist who was also very patient. And she would say to me uh, things like, Oh, David, you forgot my sandwich. By which she did not mean two pieces of bread with some cheese in between, but two beers and a whiskey. I felt she was... Underneath all of that, a very warm person who was probably very damaged by the studio system at the time. Catherine Deneuve, who was relatively new then, she was a rising star rather than a well-established one. I found her to be, to be somewhat glacial. By the time we got to the Paris studios, she was in the midst of breaking up with the uh, celebrated British fashion photographer David Bailey and he would come into the studios in his black leather jacket and Cuban heels and ask if he could see her. So I would go up to her dressing room and say, Mr. Bailey is here again, and she'd say, tell him I'm not here. So I'd go back down and say, she says she's not here, at which he would turn around and storm out of the studio. Tadamite. Central Algeria, 1970. The Tadamite Plateau, amongst most desert travelers, is known for being a daunting part of the crossing through the Sahara. Vast amounts of nothingness, lots of mirages, and nighttime is a welcome escape from the heat with passengers electing to sleep under a starry night sky, sometimes lit up by a full moon. A year before, this rocky satellite, 400,000 kilometers away, hosted its first human visitors. And for a young man of 24, seeking a new lease on life, anything truly did feel possible. So along with Charles Harris, who was a colleague from his high school days, who had done a stint in the army and was now at a bit of a loose end, 
David had the idea to organize an ambitious venture, an overland safari through Africa. We slowly put this together, advertised it, and we got people willing to pay us to drive them across Africa, and we had never driven further than France. So having got the first bit organized, we thought, well, what are we going to do when we get to South Africa? And we thought, well, we'll have to come back. So why don't we organize another trip of people who are already down there who want to come back? Six weeks after their convoy had passed through Uganda, Major General Idi Amin took control, establishing an eight-year-long reign of terror. And further down south, owing to apartheid in Rhodesia and South Africa, the travelers had to disguise their passage through those countries by the use of dual passports and twin sets of vehicle documents because evidence of such a visit would have landed them in jail indefinitely in Tanzania. And we devised a route that came back up through Mozambique, uh, Malawi, back into East Africa, and then thought, well, we'll ship the vehicles, the two Land Rovers, from Mombasa to Bombay. Then we'll do North India and Kathmandu and then come back through Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iran, Turkey, and Europe. So we did this whole overland trip for almost a year. I think the, the overland trip opened my eyes to the rest of the world in a way that had never happened, and I became increasingly interested in these other cultures. Earl's Court Road, London, 1979. It's the end of a brutal decade, with workers being fired and unemployment on the rise. Strikes and inflation were the order of the day in the 1970s. Famously, the city's garbage collectors also went on strike and left massive piles of trash accumulating on the streets. And because the coal miners also went on strike, a three-day work week was implemented in London to save on fuel. But with this unrest also came some major changes in British society by the end of the decade, two of particular note being an emerging punk culture and a new chapter in the advancement of women's involvement in politics, which was, of course, capped off by the ascension to power of Margaret Thatcher. But for David, 1979 marked the start of his journey to the island in a flat on Earl's Court Road, where a faded picture of a small island on a lagoon caught his eye. I was being shown this album. It was a country I knew nothing about. There were photographs of huge stone Buddhas that were in these famous ancient cities, and it was very attractive. And there was this little photograph in the corner of a an island, and I asked what that was, and I was told it was a retreat place for Buddhist monks to go and be in silence. And it stuck in my mind. One thing led to another, and I finally arrived in Sri Lanka and got permission to stay there. First I met a monk in Colombo who gave me a letter of introduction to take to the monk who, the chief priest who lived on the island. Uh, saying I could stay. So I went with this envelope that was written in Singalese on a long train journey down to the south coast and then walked through the surrounding jungle at night along this path 
eventually I came to this place which had a few old lamp posts. There was no electricity on this island. They had oil lamps, kerosene lamps. And eventually I saw a window with a, a lamp in it and I saw the shape of a couple of bald-headed monks looking at me and they weren't expecting anyone. So they were amazed to see this person arrive with a rock <laughs> out of the darkness and I was greeted and they brought a coconut and hacked it open, gave me coconut to drink and I was shown to a room, left there for the night. That's how my stay began. There were occasionally visiting monks who used it as a stopover place for a few nights, going somewhere else. I was pretty much left on my own. People would sometimes come past and see me. I think they were just intrigued to be told there was this odd Englishman in white clothes living in a hut. And one of the things I used to do was to go get up in the morning just before dawn and walk down these steps when it was still slightly dark. You could just see the sky lightening and stand right at the edge of the water where there was a view across the water of another very small island 200 yards away, uninhabited, nothing on it except birds. And they would, at the first sign of light, the sky lightning, they would start making their calls. Hundreds and hundreds of them. And they would make all this noise that would build up to a crescendo and then they'd all lift off and take off and disappear towards the sun. And they'd always come back in the evening before dark every single day. It was a wonderful way to greet the day. One day I was walking around the island and uh, something was fluttering in the ground. I saw it was a small owl and there was something not quite right with it. So I disentangled it from these, uh, this undergrowth and to see if it would fly and I tried to see if it wouldn't. It crash landed again in the ground. Anyway, I carried it back to my hut and I wasn't really sure <laughs> what to do with it. So I put it in a box because I think I had a box so it could rest and I would see whether it would be inclined to fly. So uh, I called the owl Bakamuna, which is simply the Singhalese for owl. But if you translate it literally, Bakamuna means all-seeing face, which I thought was a wonderful way of describing an owl. In ancient Greece, the owl was considered a sacred bird and it was associated with wisdom and the goddess Athena, with some statues of Athena actually appearing with an owl's head. They have a unique characteristic of being virtually completely silent in flight, which perhaps explains the attribution of more sinister characteristics within a host of other cultures. But nowadays, owls seem to be having a bit of a resurgence in popular culture, as evidenced by the latest Japanese trend of owl petting cafes, which have sprung up across major cities, complete with owl-themed snacks and lattes. But David had far deeper reasons to feel a sense of affection for the fledgling. He recalls an incident during his days at school that would leave a mark. There was a, a particular master there. He was a very violent character. 
Anyway, in this particular incident, I found an injured bird during the break. And I found it in the grass and picked it up and gave it to him and then immediately regretted it. All he did was he took it in his hands and he just wrung its neck. I remember vividly all this yellow stuff coming out between his fingers and he just threw it away and rang the bell and told us to get into the classroom. Well, that was indelibly printed on my brain. But many years later, I realized that a lot of these people that were given these teaching posts after the Second World War were actually demobilized military who had suffered appalling traumas during the Second World War, but had had no counseling or therapy or PTSD treatment or anything. It wasn't even recognized. So there, in the thick of a jungle, miles away from home, David had found his life pleasantly interrupted. Bakamuna became my solitary companion. I think a certain bond developed with him. He would occasionally come out of his cage and fly around the room, but he wouldn't go much further for a while. Sometimes I'd put him on the table where I was writing and he'd sit there looking at me, blinking, look of disdain on his face. <laughs> some weeks passed and at some point I let him out and he disappeared. But I also knew that they're disinclined to disappear back to the wild, even if for short periods of domestication. And lo and behold, he did reappear. He didn't stay overnight. He came back by the evening. And then there came a moment when I thought I should make more of an attempt to release him to the wild and try and get him back into the wild, since he now seemed capable of flying. So I picked him up and he gave me a stab with his beak. He was quite tame to the extent that he didn't do that kind of thing normally if I picked him up. So I put a towel around my hand and he perched on a towel and I ran down the path and he took off and he disappeared over the trees and I thought, oh, well, that's good. And then, of course, later that night he reappeared. That night was very odd because um, I put him back in his cage and somebody had actually brought a mouse and he had eaten a bit but not much of it. And it looked like he was in a kind of not that well or something wasn't, wasn't right. I put some other stuff in there, he didn't eat that. So I did wonder, but I didn't really pay too much attention. But that night was a very still night. I eventually fell, to sleep, fell asleep and had some very strange dreams that night. And I woke up in the morning and went down to the well and it was a very grey, overcast day. And it was very, very still. There wasn't a breath of wind. And I was staring at this dark patch of water on the lagoon. Felt there was something, inside me I felt there was something wrong. And I couldn't figure out what it was. And I realized that I'd gone down to get water. It was still half dark. And I'd hardly bothered to notice Bakamuna. But when I came back up, I looked in his cage and saw he'd fallen down as lying on his side. He was still alive, but only just. And I tried to revive him with a bit of water and all kinds of things, and he died within the hour. And I never found out why.
So I told the monks. They also couldn't figure out what had happened. The sad moment of his death brought me to that point of seeing the tragedy of existence, confronting the tragedy of existence, and sitting down to then write about that whole episode. The death of Bakamuna was the beginning of an attempt by David to answer that age-old question, Who am I? There is an unexamined assumption that I am the names and labels attached to my occupation, my cultural identity, my social community, and hence a fixed notion of identity becomes a default position. Perhaps by letting go of a lot of what I am, I come to see more clearly who I am. But crucial to this path is the need for curiosity, to investigate and inquire beyond our comfort zones. Periods of silence and solitude are essential to becoming fully human, so that you have the opportunity to plumb your own intimate depths, to go through the abyss, and then find solidarity with others who have found ways, often extraordinary ways, of being aligned fully with their own inner truth. Those who know what peace there may be in silence, amidst the noise and haste. A Coruña, Northwest Spain, April 10th. 2020. As the noontime church bells ring out, there is a life that has been lost to this neighborhood little more than two hours before. Her name was Presentacion Rodriguez Perez, and she has passed on a few weeks before her 93rd birthday. The beauty of having a large family over several continents, is tempered by the fact that not everyone can be met in one's lifetime. And for me, it means mourning the lost chance of being able to have met this lady, and perhaps to have seen the same twinkle in her eye as in those of my daughter, her great-granddaughter. To her, I offer this. Por toda la vida que trajiste en esta tierra, que la tuya sea siempre recordada. And to everyone out there, stay strong, stay safe, and know that the great big hush will pass. <laughs>